Exodus chapter 1, page 39, if uh, you're using one of our Bibles. And so uh, this, this morning, I want us to wrestle with a big idea that's going to kind of send us into this series over the next 10 weeks together. And, and, and this is the big idea that I, I want us to wrestle with is, this morning is, what is the foundation of all godly deliverance? What is the foundation of all godly deliverance. And so some of you are sitting here this morning and you know that you need to be delivered. Uh, There are some of you that have been wrestling with hidden addictions for decades and you know you need to be delivered. There's some of you that are in the midst of like broken relational patterns and you know you need to be delivered. There's some of you that have been hiding things from your spouse and you know you need to be delivered. There are some of you that have been hiding things from room, roommates, hiding things from yourself. There are these areas of physical and spiritual and mental and emotional bondage that you found yourself in. And there, there are some of you here this morning, and you go, man, I need a deliverance. And then there are a lot of you here this morning, because we're in Nashville, Tennessee, we're in the South, and it's such a nice, comfortable, sweet place to be. And there are a lot of, here, a lot of you here this morning, and you have no idea that you need deliverance. And here's the great news, whether you know it or not, You need deliverance, and whether you know it or not, the story of Exodus is of a God that delights in delivering his people, of a God that despite their brokenness and despite their wickedness and despite their short-sightedness of a God who keeps coming in in his kindness and his grace and his love and his power and his mercy, and he keeps bringing the people out of bondage. And this morning, that's what I want us to wrestle with, is what is the foundation by which the deliverance of God comes into the human life. Now, this is one of those mornings where I wish I wasn't a pastor. I wish I wasn't like standing up here talking behind a microphone because the conversation that I want us to have is far more effective across a coffee table than it is from behind a pulpit. And I wish we had the time to sit down and to to get uh, at the heart level together this morning, but I'll trust the Holy Spirit will do what I'm incapable of doing. And if we were sitting in a coffee shop this morning, I'd look in the eyes and I'd ask you a really simple question. I'd say, what are you scared of? What, what, what's the thing that, that you are fearful of? And there's two ways of answering this question, right? There's kind of the surface way of talking about what we're fearful of, the, uh, the answers that you would give at a party full of people that you don't know or around a dinner table with friends that you don't trust or at a freshman mixer at the college you just started where someone stands up and says, hey, what's your biggest fear? And there are these moments where we answer that question and we answer it with the safest, semi-funny, publicly tolerable way of dealing with our fear. And so we say things like, you know, I'm scared to death of spiders or I'm scared to death of heights or my greatest fear is clowns. I hate clowns, you know, or whatever your fears are. There's one way of talking about fear that stays on the surface of our life. But this morning as we deal with fear, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm asking you, like, what are you actually scared of? Like, what is the thing that's down in the bedrock of your heart? The thing that you will go to a counselor about, and you'll be there for six sessions before you tell them why you've really come. The thing that if someone else found out about it, you'd be scared the relationship is done. What is that place of fear? You know, some of you are scared to death of you're going to be alone forever. You're scared you're never going to find your birth mother, and if you do, she won't accept you. Or you're scared if you really let people into your life, it will go the way that it always goes when you let people into your life. Some of you, when you are alone with yourself at night, you're not convinced that God likes you. You're certainly not convinced that he loves you. 
And there's this implicit fear. And one of the things that the, the book of Exodus, that the work of God in Moses' life is going to remind us of over and over and over and over is what you fear matters. And what you fear and how you fear shapes you in ways that you would never think about or understand. What you fear changes the way you act. What you fear changes the way you live. That some of us have spent our whole lives managing our behaviors based around the things that we fear. And Exodus is this, this reminder that God is the God that longs to swoop in and to deliver us. But that the foundation of all godly deliverance is fear. And in so many ways, the story of Exodus chapter 1 is the tale of two fears. I wish I could give you all of the background, all of the story, but here's the cliff notes, and we'll, we'll unpack more of this as we go into this in the future. But in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God makes a promise to a guy named Abraham. He comes to him in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to give you a family, that family will become a nation, that nation will have some land, and that family that becomes a nation will become the nation through whom all nations are blessed. And the rest of the book of Genesis is the outworking of God's faithfulness to the promises that he's kept to this guy named Abraham. And it's this big reminder that the promises of God are never held captive to the expectations of human experience. Have you noticed how often in the scriptures like God will make a promise and it's like there's a promise and then there's a season of what feels like forever of waiting and then there's the faithfulness of God that comes through. And over and over and over, God is going to remind the people that he is faithful, but his faithfulness will not bow down to the expectations of human experience. Now, have you ever found yourself in the waiting room of God's promises? Where you know that he's good, you know that he's powerful, you know that when he speaks, things happen, but you look across the horizon of your circumstances and there seems to be no evidence of God's faithfulness. And this is where the people of Israel find themselves when you come to Exodus chapter 1 through a series of unfortunate events that had been orchestrated and worked in by the mighty and provocative hand of God. Abraham's ancestors find themselves living in Egypt, and for 400 years they live as slaves. And they find themselves in this amazing predicament that they never wanted to be in, crying out to God, and as they look across the horizon of their life, it seems like God is nowhere to be found. They go, have you been there? Have you been in one of those places where you look and it's like God cannot be found? And so you come to Exodus chapter 1 and it's almost as if the writer is, is begging us to ask the question, how did we end up here? How did we go from being the people of God to being people that so desperately need deliverance? And the answer to that question is found in the tale of two fears. You see that the fear of a guy named Pharaoh and you're going to see the fear of two women who are on the lower level of society. Neither one of them understood what their fear was going to do. The fear of one man was going to lead to his destruction. The fear of these two women was going to lead to the deliverance of the people. And this morning, I want us to wrestle with what is the foundation of all deliverance and to really ask ourselves the question, what is it that we really fear? Because what we fear shapes us. And so you come to this story, the people are in bondage in Exodus chapter 1. They've had years of walking in the privilege and the favor of God that seems as though that has evaporated. And Exodus 1 begins to tell us how this unfolded. I want you to look at this with me. Exodus chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 8. It says, Then there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing. Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, 
the father of the promise. Joseph was the man who had raised up to second in power. God had used Joseph to, to greatly bless the people of Egypt. But time goes by and a new boss comes in and it's that moment that you've had at work where you're, a new boss shows up and he doesn't care what you did. He doesn't care what school you graduated from. He doesn't care what your old story was. No longer do you have the favor of the boss. It says that a new leader, a new king raises up to whom Joseph meant nothing. He came to power in Egypt, verse 9. And he said to his people, look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become more numerous. Listen to this, maybe the most important verse in verse 10. And if war breaks out, that word if. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us and leave our country. So Pharaoh put slave masters over the people of God to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses, store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed the people of God, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them tirelessly. I can barely say that word. Maybe you can say it better than me sometimes. So you see this story unfolding. The people of God, they began in this place of privilege in Egypt. And then a new leader comes to power and privilege gives way to social pressure. He begins to put pressure on them. And then eventually you get into the end of chapter one and pressure is gonna give way to persecution and the people of God are gonna cry out, God, help us, deliver us. How did we get here? And you begin to see the answer to this in verses eight through 10. They got here through fear. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. I never noticed it until earlier this week. I was, I was reading the story. It says that this new leader comes to power. And up until this point in their story, the people of God had always been a blessing to the Egyptians. True story. True historical moment. They'd always been a blessing. But all of a sudden, this, this leader, this guy named Pharaoh, he begins wrestling with the what if. He says, he says, what if we go to war? What if they keep increasing? What if they raise up? What if they turn against us? And it's that fear of the what if that's gonna lead him to the oppression of the people around him. And I wonder this, this morning as we sit here, how many of you are still living under the fear of the what if? What if I don't get married? What if I don't climb out of the hole that I'm in? What if the addiction never ceases? What if the depression never fades? What if God never answers the prayer? What if I don't get at the job? What if I do lose the job? And have you ever noticed how often we find ourselves being gripped by the same fear that brought down Egypt? This fear of the what if. What if? What if? What if? And you realize that pretty quickly the fear didn't just drive Pharaoh's life. It began to oppress everyone around him. And I started asking the Lord that question this week. I'm like, Lord, where are the areas of my heart where my fear of the what if is oppressing those around me. Because have you ever noticed that when you get fearful of uncertainty, you try to control everything that you think you can control? And so Pharaoh begins tightening the screws. And you begin to realize it's his fear of the what if that puts the people in bondage. But in Exodus chapter one, Pharaoh's fear is not the only fear that you see at work. Jump down to verse 17. Uh, jump down to verse 15, actually. I want you to notice this. When he realized the pressure wouldn't work, this is what he said. He said, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, this would be like the president of Egypt going to St. Thomas Midtown and talking to the women that are in charge of uh, the, the, the place where babies are born. He goes to the Hebrew midwives and this is what he says. He says, verse 16, when you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see the baby is a boy, kill him. 
But if it's a girl, let her live. But the midwives, however, listen to this. The midwives forever feared the Lord. They feared the Lord and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. And so there's this moment where the king is driven by fear. Like in the bedrock of his heart, he's scared of losing power. In the bedrock of his heart, he's scared of these people raising up. In the bedrock of his heart, he goes, if something changes, I'll lose my position of power. Fear of the what if. But later on in the story, you see a totally different fear. It's not about what will happen if the people raise up. It's what will happen if, if God comes through on what God says he would do. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. It says these women, as they were standing in front of Pharaoh, did not choose to fear. And sometimes we read these stories in the Bible and I go, this is such a, we read it, it's two-dimensional, it's black and white. Some of you are sitting here and you're like, who cares? It's an old story about people in Egypt. How, how does it matter to us? Over and over and over, the story of Exodus is this reminder that what you fear matters and most of us spend our whole lives fearing the very things that don't matter at all. Most of us spend our whole lives just fearing the what if. Fearing the people, fearing the outcome, fearing the culture. And you get these two women in the story who stand up and they choose to fear the only one worth fearing. And their fear of the Lord will become the foundation of the deliverance, not just for their life, but for all of the people that will come after them. I love the irony of the story that Pharaoh was so scared about more baby boys being born because he knew that, knew that baby boys could grow up and be warriors. Pharaoh was scared of the men. He had no idea that it would be the women that would bring his kingdom down. It's two women that in, in the shadows of God's hand, in the shadows of this terrible season of oppression, stand up and say, God, we don't care what anyone else will say. We don't care what anyone else thinks. We don't care how the culture feels. We will choose to fear you, know you, love you, and walk with you. And the fear of the Lord will be the thing that will kick open the door for the deliverance of God to come and change a people. I've been thinking about this a, a lot recently, and, and this is the reason I think this story matters so much, is because we live in a time where the church, I'm not talking about the culture, I'm talking about the church, we live in a time where the church is being racked by fear. I hear it all the time. People are scared of who's going to win in November. Scared of the election. People scared of getting older. People scared of dying. People scared of losing their job. People scared of being single. People scared of being married to the person they're married to forever because they hate their spouse. You know, we live in a time where people are fearful. But the American church is shockingly devoid of the fear of God. And I don't say this to, to make us fearful. But we've been so convinced. Jesus is a friend. There's a friend next to you. Jesus is a friend, so sing along. And we're so done with legalistic religion of our past that we've confused legalism for fear. And the great challenge for the American church is not our lawlessness. It's not that we break the rules of God. It's that we are aweless. We're not in awe of the Lord. The American church is shockingly devoid of reverence of God. And where there's no reverence for God, there's no power for deliverance. I know this idea of fear, like some of you are sitting here going, oh man, that's what I heard my whole life. You have people stand up and say, you need to be scared of God. 
There's truth in that. But argue, maybe you grew up and you, you, you heard it, heard it in a way that it's not spoken of in Scripture. You know, fear of the Lord is not this unrestrained terror that God is out to get you. Fear of the Lord is what happens when a human being like you comes to terms with the reality that the only reason you have breath in your lungs this very moment is because God is allowing it. My boys are recklessly fearless, three little boys. And we're in this season where we're trying to teach them how to fear what needs to be feared. And so my youngest son, Judah, who is almost two, has no fear of the street. And so we're trying to teach him how to properly fear the street because I know if he doesn't, he's going to get hit by a car and he will not win that battle. And so I'm trying to help him, buddy, you can't go on the road, and I'm trying to help him see this is what you need to fear. But when I hope that my son will fear the road... I'm not hoping that he'll lay in his crib at night going, Dad, there's a street outside of our house. No. What am I talking about when I hope that Judah will fear the road? I hope that he will walk in reverence and relationship to the relation of the power that exists in the road. That he'd understand in that place, without grace, he doesn't survive. And until there's fear of the Lord, there's no opportunity for friendship with God. I want you to see this every time in the scriptures, when someone comes face to face with God, they never see him and go, wow, you're amazing, it's so cool that you're there. Anytime a human being encounters God, the first response is fear. Isaiah sees the Lord and he falls on his face and he goes, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter is fishing in Luke chapter 5 and he realizes that Jesus is not just a rabbi or a teacher, but he's the creator, Lord of the universe. And what does Peter say? Peter doesn't say, hey, Jesus, stay in my boat and help, help my fishing business flourish. Peter realizes that he's a human being in the presence of God and he says, Jesus, get out of my boat. Get far away from me. I'm a sinner. Or think about Daniel, this amazing man of God. He comes face to face with the presence of God on the bank of a river and falls on his face in fear. That when human beings encounter the presence of God, really encounter the presence of God, it always looks and feels a lot like fear. But what happens, what happens immediately in every time throughout the scriptures when people encounter the fear of God, what does God say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And you go, okay, what is it, God? <laughs> what is it? And this is what the writers of Proverbs are saying. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom and understanding. Do you want to know the Lord? It begins with this proper understanding that he is the Lord our God, high and lifted up, high and exalted. There is none like him. His ways are not like your ways. His thoughts are not like your thoughts. I just want to challenge you for a second. If God seems to agree with all of your positions... If God always thinks the way you think, if God always votes the way you vote, if God hates the people you hate and loves the people you love, if he stands for the people you stand with and stands against the people you're against, then you probably don't know God. There's this thing that happens when we see God as he is, where he becomes high and lifted up in the human heart. 
And it's only when God is high and lifted up that, that we then begin to enjoy the grace and the strength and the beauty of Christ Jesus. You see, until God is feared, Jesus is nothing more than a life coach. Until God is feared, Jesus is, is nothing more than someone cheering you on towards your own successes and your own dreams and your own goals. But when God is high and lifted up, and when we realize our need for deliverance, the fear of the Lord comes. This isn't just the writer of Proverbs. You know, I love what he says in 19, verse 23, Proverbs 19, verse 23. He says, the fear of the Lord is what leads human beings to life. But this is what Jesus said. Some of you are sitting here going, okay, but what about Jesus, Dave? What about Jesus? Yeah, let's talk about Jesus for a second. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10? He's talking to the crowds. And he essentially says to them, don't worry about what everybody else thinks about you. He says, don't worry what the culture thinks about you. Jesus says, you don't need to be scared of them. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, instead, you need to fear God who can throw your soul in hell forever. Now, some of you are sitting here going, whoa, 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 whoa. That's Jesus. That's not Dave talking. That's Jesus. That's what he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, you've spent your whole life fearing everything other than the one that God has called you to fear. Is that me? No, somebody else. Sorry for embarrassing you, whoever that was. Jesus said, you spent your whole life fearing everything other than the one you need to fear. And here's the great exchange that you see, the great paradox of the scripture. When you really fear the Lord, you're filled with courage to face everything else. Like when, you're, when you fear the Lord, you're no longer so worried about how things turn out. When the Lord is high and lifted up, you, you don't matter if you're sitting in the first seat of the courts of public opinion. When the Lord is high and lifted up, you don't care as much how people think about you or feel about you. Those things still matter, but they matter in their proper place. When the fear of the Lord seizes the human heart, what happens here in Exodus chapter one with these two women happens with all of us, where they stand before the most powerful man on earth and they say, we know what you've told us to do, but we have chosen to fear the Lord. Every great revival in human history has begun with prayer, fasting, and the fear of the Lord. Where people call out on the name of God, Lord, we need deliverance. And often before God comes in his kindness, before he comes with his friendship, he comes with his holiness. And I just want to say this to you because you're not going to hear it a lot. Some of you have been a part of ethos for a long time and you've never even heard it here. Is what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 25 is true where Jesus says, I am coming back and I'm going to stand and all the nations will gather before me. And he says, and I will make a judgment between all people. And until you and I come face to face with this reality that our lives are but a mist and that God himself is so much bigger and more wonderful and more powerful than we could ever imagine, until we come face to face with who God really is, things like grace are nothing but cheap wine. Things like God's love just feel like additives to a diet that's already full. But when you stand in the fear of the Lord, the friendship of God becomes the sustaining sweetness of the human life.
What I love is the book of Exodus is not about fear. The book of Exodus is about friendship. But Exodus chapter one is about the foundation by which all deliverance comes. And the the foundation by which all deliverance comes is the fear of the Lord. And here's what I wanna ask you on a Sunday morning in downtown Nashville as we sit in this cool church in a bar. I just wanna ask you, do you fear the Lord? Like really, do you fear the Lord? It's the most important question. Anyone's ever, like, do you fear the Lord? Are you concerned with what he thinks about your life? If you were to stand before him this morning, I'm not talking heaven or hell here, I'm just talking about relationship. If you were to stand before him this morning and to see him high and lifted up, would you fear him? See, fear gives way to friendship. But it always starts in fear. And this, this morning, this is what I want to invite you to do with me. is to just join me in a season of prayer. It sounds so weird to pray about this. But all week long, I've just been praying, okay, Lord, would you just restore the fear of the Lord to our country? God, we, we live in a country, people don't fear the Lord here. Let's just be honest. His name's on all of our money. His name is on all of our buildings but we treat the Lord lightly. Like, Lord, would you restore the fear of the Lord to our country? Would you restore the fear of the Lord to our city? I, I know this is the belt buckle of the Bible belt, but Lord, would you restore the Lord, uh, the fear of the Lord to our city? But more than that, God, would you restore the fear of the Lord to our church? And would this be a place where, where God is high and lifted up? Where God is honored and praised as God, not as life coach? Where God is honored and praised and worshiped as the creator of all things that died on a cross so that you and I could know him. I go, God, would you restore that? I'm convinced sermons don't restore that. Human guilt and fear and shame don't restore that. But only an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God for people that know they need to be delivered. So that's what I'm praying for. And I want to invite you to pray with me. Let's stand together. We're going to pray. We're going to take communion. And we'll worship. Father, I love you and I thank you for who you are. Father, would your presence among us this morning be honored? God, would you restore a fear of the Lord here? Father, would you help for us to care far more about you than we do anything else? Um, God, I could say a bunch of things here to make the prayer longer, but <laughs> you don't need that. Father, would you just please move in our hearts this morning as we break the bread, as we take the wine, would you uncover who we are before you? And Lord, in the midst of that uncovering, in the midst of that moment, Lord Jesus, would you come in just like you did with uh, your dear friend, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter one. He sees the Lord high and lifted up and he's terrified and it says that you, Jesus, put your hand on him on that Sunday morning. He said, don't be afraid. And so, Lord, this, this morning, I pray that you would do what only you could do, Father, um, uh, in our midst as we take communion as we worship. Uh, Lord, would you restore uh, a fear of you in our city and in our nation and across the world, God? And Lord, would you deliver us from the bondage that is created by lesser fears? Um, thank you, Jesus. It's in your name I pray and give thanks. Amen.